In this episode of the podcast, we meet Evan Langsam, who is an associate at Seed Invest, an equity crowdfunding platform located in New York City. Evan worked with Sutton in the venture debt side. He is currently working with Seed Invest. Seed Invest is an investment platform plus venture fund that invests 500k to 50 million in early to growth stage companies across all industries through a network of 500k plus investors. To date, they've deployed over 300 million backing 200 plus companies. Uh, really excited about tonight. We have Evan Langsam here from Seed Invest. Um, as many of you guys know, we you know we we run a venture platform. Um, Evan was one of our alumni. He's worked in venture on more of the um, uh, the venture debt side, and it was kind of an interesting pivot to um, to really break into actually a um, a VC role. Um, but you know, I think everybody has their own origin story, their own kind of twists and turns with their career. Um, so, Evan, welcome to the show. It's uh, it's great to have you. Uh, in this capacity now, almost like a mentor, you know, kind of, yeah. um, you know, helping all of us understand the the difficult journey of how to break into VC and and what it takes to actually make that um, that pivot. So, thanks for uh, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule. Are you in New York now? Are you officially in New York from Boston? So I'm actually still in New Jersey, um, looking okay. at New York soon. But yeah, my, our headquarters is in Manhattan, but everyone is yeah. still remote for now. Hopefully, not too much longer. But sure. Yeah. New Jersey. So have you met the team yet or, um, you know, you're still yet to meet them? Yeah, we've had a few company outings over the past quarter, which were super nice because yeah. I was onboarded virtually, which was a really interesting experience, um, you know, meeting people for, you know, you know, two quarters and not actually knowing them personally. Uh, but luckily, it was a great onboarding and it was really nice to meet people in person and be outside in the city. Um, so hopefully more of that in the future. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, I, I want to hear everything, Evan. I want to hear what you've been up to. It's, uh, you know, it's been coming on a year now. Yeah. So, um, you know, but why don't we start from the beginning? Why don't we start with your career um, and how you broke into more of the, the venture debt growth equity? Let's unpack what venture debt is and why that's important. And, um, you know, there's a startup that I think could, um, th- there's a startup that we invested in recently that, um, that I think could could impact venture debt. So we'll talk about that as well. And then sure. and then excited to hear about all the great stuff you guys are doing on the growth equity side at, at Cedemus. So let's let's start in the beginning. You know, where'd you grow up? Uh, tell us about your background, what your parents did and uh, what you studied and kind of how you navigated into your career to, um, to where you are now. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'll bring it all the way back. So I'm from New Jersey. Um, you know, my father, he actually has owned and operated his own business for you know, almost 40 years at this point. So he's a, he's a meat distributor in New York city. So he has a warehouse in the Bronx. He sells to local, you know, food shops, restaurants, you know, pork, beef, chicken, you yeah. know, seafood as well. So he, he's kind of a grinder, you know, that it was my grandfather's. No, no pun intended. No, no. Yeah. No pun intended. Um, so he's been doing that for a while. You know, I, I didn't really work with him in the warehouse as a kid cause it is a get your hands dirty type of business, but he, he's very entrepreneurial. He was very inspirational for me, you know, seeing him work really long hours and, and the journey that that is. And then my mom, she was a teacher when she started off and she recently became a real estate agent. So she works in New Jersey. She sells houses. Obviously, it's been a pretty good year for her, given the exodus from Manhattan over, over the bridge. Um, but, you know, real estate was always kind of an interest of mine, which I can get into in a bit. But yeah, so grew up in New Jersey, went to Tulane University. When I started there, I was actually an architecture major. 
So my life goal was, hey, I'm going to design and build skyscrapers. I'm going to design houses. Um, I quickly found out at Tulane that, you know, I did not have the artistic ability to be competitive in that field. And luckily, I realized that pretty quickly. So I think, you know, about two semesters into college, I switched over to the business school. Didn't really know what I wanted to do yet, but I knew I had some interest in kind of the real estate field. And my first internship was actually at a private real estate shop in New Jersey that at the time when I joined, they had about, you know, 20 industrial buildings in the metropolitan area surrounding Manhattan. And I think that was, you know, in the summer of 2016. So that was just when the last mile uh, delivery was coming out. So Amazon just came out with Prime. Walmart was trying to compete. So it was really interesting to be there. And I was more in a research role. So looking at the portfolio, understanding which buildings can be flipped and, and transferred into 3PLs. Um, and doing research on Amazon and kind of where they're strategically locating their buildings, what prices they were paying. And that was, that was a really cool spot for me to be in. When I went back to school, um, I joined a securities research program called the Birkin Road Reports. So each semester at Tulane, the business school picks a small percentage of students to participate. So I was paired up with two or three people and we were tasked with creating, you know, this very extensive report on this public company called Marine Products Corporation. Uh, which at the time was the second largest sport fishing boat manufacturer. So that was kind of my first introduction to, you know, assessing companies, looking at macroeconomic factors. And it was really cool. We got to actually go to the manufacturing facility in Georgia, talk to the C CEO, the CTO, the CFO, and really understand the business and how to value a company um, based on, you know, historical revenue trends, but also looking at the market in general, which competitors are coming in, what are they doing differently? And that was a really eye-opening experience for me. It was kind of my first introduction to large corporate companies in the stock market. So that kind of intrigued my finance background a bit. Um, after that, right before I graduated, I interned at JLL, Jones Lang LaSalle, which is you know one of the largest commercial real estate firms in the world. And there I was on their Northeast industrial team. So more on the institutional side, when you know BlackRock, Blackstone, they were coming in buying huge industrial portfolios. Um, to sell off, you know, in the, in the metropolitan area. And that was a great experience as well. So when it was my senior year, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. You know, I learned so much. I knew there were more industries out there. I was super interested in, in learning about companies and, and analyzing them for my experience in the securities research program. And there was an opportunity that came upon me at a company called BridgeBank um, based in Boston. So BridgeBank is the division of Western Alliance Bank, which is a very large bank holding company based out of Phoenix. And, you know, they basically said to me, you're going to be an analyst in the technology banking group. Um, you're going to focus on venture debt for growth stage companies. And at the time, I was like, that sounds awesome. I have no idea what that means. Um, but when I got there, you know, it was a very interesting role and in my first introduction to the venture ecosystem, but I was on the debt side. Um, so basically, you know, my team was underwriting debt facilities, both venture debt term loans and both recurring revenue lines of credit for software companies. And really, you know, an example is there's a company, they go out, they raise a very large round of equity. Typically, they'll throw some debt on top of that to extend their runway as they burn through that equity. And there's multiple ways to do it. Um, but the underwriting that I was doing and we were doing, it was more holistic and qualitative compared to, you know, most people think of debt on the real estate angle where it's like, hey, you're going to be repaid by future cash flows. The companies we were working with were burning five to $20 million a year. So my first inclination was, how are you lending money to these people? How are you getting repaid? And then, you know, I could get into this in a minute, but I learned about the intricacies, what to look for in companies and how the venture debt industry really works. Sure. Can you break up the, or maybe unpack the different types of debt, right? I mean, we, in our program, we talked about senior debt, mezzanine debt, 
but maybe you can unpack that when, you know, when it comes to importance of analyzing companies from a venture debt perspective, what are the different flavors of debt and the use cases of them? Yeah. So, you know, so, so the, so I was at a bank, right. So we mm-hmm. were seeing that, um, but there are yeah. a lot of venture debt lenders that are private companies. Um, so they're more, they're, you know, they're, they're junior, senior. So they sit right below senior. They're more of a mezzanine type. Yeah. Basically, you know, the two forms of it are there's term loans, right. You know, you know, 20, 30 year, 30 year terms. And then there's also recurring lines of, of credit. So on the term loan side, this is really meant for a large company just raised hundred million. Typically they'll put a third of that of debt on the books. And it's really meant there to be kind of a safe haven. So if the mm-hmm. company is growing really quickly and burning through a lot of capital, they have a large piece of debt to kind of show um, their investors and people participating in the business that, hey, we do have a backfall. We do have a lot of cash on the books. And if we ever do need it, if we ever want to acquire a company or merge, we have the capital to do so. And we don't have to burn through the equity from the investors. On the other end, you have um, you know revolving lines of credit. And we call these MRR lines of credit, monthly recurring revenue lines of credit. And for companies, mostly SaaS companies who have this contracted revenue on a monthly basis, you know historically there hasn't been many ways to access capital from that. So many yeah. people are familiar with accounts receivables or uh, invoice factoring. So this is the, you know a similar form, but it's for the actual revenue. So for example. There's a SaaS company that's doing a million dollars a month of revenue that's all contracted. They would come to us and say, hey, you know, I, I, I want some money on the books. How can I use this as collateral? And we would say, all right, you're doing a million dollars a month. We'll give you a, a 6x multiple on that. Here's a $6 million revolving credit line. You could draw it down whenever. And in most cases, companies don't draw it down, but it's mm-hmm. really meant to extend runway once they're burned through the equity capital. So if a company has $10 million in cash that they burn through a year, they can go draw down on this facility to extend runway, maybe hit another milestone or two prior to raising their next round so they can increase their valuation. Mm-hmm. So again, it's meant as a safe haven, um, but it's a little less burdensome than a term loan because you could pull it down whenever and it's revolving. Um, yeah. And the the incentive to the the lender is you can, you know, how would the, how do the interest rates work? Is it is it um, higher than you know getting a typical loan because it's a larger magnitude of money or, you know, I guess the, the incentive as a business, right. Running a venture debt business. Um, it seems like it's an attractive business, right. Cause you're mostly investing in healthy companies that are generating predictable revenue monthly, right. So they're, they're generating that predictable revenue. So you're, you know, that, you know, in the next couple of months, they'll still probably generate revenue. Right. I mean, there, isn't that some of the prerequisites that they have to kind of have a, uh, some type of stable monthly recurring revenue. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. after looking at a bank, which is a little bit more safe than some of the private lenders out there. Yeah. You know, basically we were looking for companies that were high growth, you know, high revenue volume growing yeah. each month. And also we're backed by high quality institutional VCs. Sure. But we had high conviction that they were going to support them throughout the journey. Um, and, and, and that's kind of what it is in terms of the pricing, you know, it is higher than a traditional loan. I think at the time when I was there pre COVID, it was like prime plus, you know, two or 3%. Yeah. But we also got small warrants in our deals. So there was <laughs> equity upside. So it was sure. a 10-year you know, hold period. If the company did go on to get acquired or IPO or raise a huge growth round of capital, mm-hmm. you know, we did we did get a piece of that, which was pretty cool. But sure. generally speaking, yes, healthy companies, large revenue, but also institutionally backed by very well-known investors. Yeah, no, that's helpful. And um, how do you think that some of these tech platforms are going to be 
innovating on venture debt. You know, now there's some platforms out there that, you know, where you can loan against your revenue, right? You got revenue that's coming in predictably, and then you can go onto a platform and, um, you know, pull revenue. Do you think that's going to impact venture debt or you think it's just going to be another supplement to the whole industry of just debt instruments? Because there's also other instruments out there, right? Besides venture debt, like you said, there's private institutions that can offer that at a different rate. Um, but do you think technology solutions are going to innovate on that or you just think they're going to just kind of be another player? Yeah, I, I know we spoke about this previously. You know, I, I think ultimately there's always going to be a place for banks, right? Mm-hmm. Companies yeah. need to deposit money. Companies need escrow services. Company needs company needs FX, and they do need the support staff there. But when it comes to some of the new companies coming up, like Pipe, um, which I know you're familiar with, you know, it is just much easier to do going through the hoops yeah. of the bank and paying crazy fees and having to go through this really extensive legal process just for, you know, a couple million dollars, it is very burdensome for companies, especially at the early stage who don't have a huge legal counsel or don't have a huge um, finance support staff to handle it. Companies like Pipe, you know, that's what I would recommend is saying, hey, if you need a couple million bucks based on your revenue, just go there, you know, don't jump through the hoops and ladders. So I think it's definitely going to impact the market significantly, especially on the early stage. Um, And that's where banks love to get companies in, right? You know, sure. you have a million bucks in the bank, we'll get you in, we'll take your deposits. But over time, we're going to hope to lend from you and, and lend the money that you have on deposit with us. Um, so I think ultimately, yes, those companies that are doing more, you know, online lending and much quicker mm-hmm. and more efficient, there, there is a huge market to dent there for sure. Sure. And I want to talk about liquidation preferences. So for the audience, right? So the liquidation preference means you get paid first when there's an exit. And a lot of times there's a multiple liquidation preference. So usually it is the senior debt that gets paid first. So I was just curious what the benchmark is. Is it usually like a 1x liquidation preference or a 2x? Or, you know, is there kind of a benchmark for like super senior debt that's like, you know, backed by collateral? Is it usually 2x or 1.5? Or what what have you been, you know, in your past career in general, what do you you think is kind of the main um, benchmark? Yeah, I, I mean, I know for us, and sorry, there's a train going on behind me. That's no, all good. <laughs> it's here. Um, I believe when I was at the bank, you know, it, it was a 1x preference, right? We yeah. were with everyone before anyone gets a penny, we are going to get repaid back. And it's tough because there wasn't much um, collateral to take from these companies, right? Besides, yeah. IP, um, you know, a lot of these companies were online SaaS companies, right? That had yeah. it all, but they don't have any inventory. So that's sure. where it differs from traditional, you know, AR financing. Um, so yeah, we sat at the top and we got repaid first. Ultimately, the goal is to never have that special situation where you have to go into a company that just went bankrupt and figure yeah. out that because it does get super confusing, right? A lot of these companies that we work with, they had the capital stack fully filled out, senior debt, mezzanine, preferred shareholders, and common. And when it gets to that point, it's a whole legal jungle to figure out how people get paid and who gets paid first. Yeah. And what's interesting too, is, you know, you're, you're also sourcing deals, right? So what's, you know, if you, if you do have a career in venture debt, where do you source the deals? Is it just through other VCs and, or, or is it, you know, are there, are there portals where you can, where people list that they want to get some, some debt, or is it just kind of a combination of both where you get inbound people coming in to, um, to look for debt? I mean, is it, is it the same way that you source deals in venture now that you're kind of, in both, you know, now that you've kind of been in both seats or is it kind of a different sourcing process as a venture debt person? 
Yeah, you know, from what I saw, it was pretty similar. Ultimately, yeah. I wasn't really sourcing deals there because I was just the analyst kind of doing the nitty gritty work. Um, mm-hmm. But from what I saw from the managing partners that I worked with, it was mostly relationship based or, um, you know, having relationships with prior companies we worked with at the bank, knowing the CFO. CFOs are, tend to switch companies very often. So having those relationships was important. But ultimately, it's relatively similar similar to VC where, um, you know, you just have to use your network and find the best companies and best deals possible. Yeah, no, that's helpful. Um, so then tell us um, what happened after that. So you were doing that for a while. And um, what got you interested in, you know, a change? I guess, were you looking for a change? And and what, what was kind of going on in your head after doing venture debt for some time? Yeah, so, you know, I was doing doing venture debt in pandemic hit last March. So I came back home to New Jersey, New York area. And at the time, you know, I knew ultimately I wanted to come back home, come to New York and, and live yeah. the time. And so I and guess- that's the prime, that's the peak of the pandemic too. Like, right, like yeah. March, April, right? Yeah, yeah, th- this, was, this was peak. And, you know, I knew I wanted to, to come to New York, didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I thought, wow, you know, I love what I'm doing in the venture side. I'd love to see another angle of it. I'd love to get on the equity end and actually work with companies from a different perspective. And at the time, Joel, that's when you created your, your first cohort at Sutton Capital. And that was yeah. really the impetus behind me joining. I knew it definitely wasn't easy to find a job. And I knew that I had some buffer time with my old job. So what better way to learn than doing a fellowship? And, and your program was super valuable. You're learning how to source deals, cold email founders, knowing how to speak to them, what questions to ask creating deal memos, you know, networking. And so ultimately that was kind of my path and kind of my buffer, but yeah. ultimately getting my job where I am now at Seed Invest. Um, yeah. And I mean, I tell me about, because I, I'm, I'm sure Seed Invest was not probably the first place that first place that you interviewed with. And then, Hey, you know, miraculously, like, you know, you, you did one interview and you got it right. I mean, I'm sure there was other, maybe even before joining Sutton Capital, right. What are some of the challenges that you faced when you were trying to interview at these funds? Like, why do you think you got rejected or why do you think it didn't work out? Um, I can definitely rattle off several times why I got rejected trying to get into VC. Um, but what, what do you think was the sticking point um, when, you, when you interviewed and, and maybe it didn't work out? Or, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you just, you know, you were so great that you just did one interview and you nailed it and that was the only, only thing. I don't know, you know? Yeah. You know, ultimately, I did do some job searching before yeah. I the Sutton, you know, fellowship program. Mm-hmm. And I think that the main issue was I didn't know what they were looking for. You yeah. know, hey, I'm a pretty smart kid. I worked in venture debt. I kind of understand the landscape, but I didn't really understand the role of, you know, you're on the front lines, you're sourcing deals, you're putting together the memos. And although I had been on the debt side and have done some similar things, I really didn't know what they wanted to hear. And that was a big yeah. for me. And then ultimately also, you know, I was 22, 23 years old at the time that I didn't really have a network. So a lot of my messages were cold. It was, you know, trying to meet people from Tulane that were in the space and connecting and hopping on calls with them. But I didn't have a buddy to turn to who was in the space to say, hey, you know, what do I need to know? What do I need to practice? What do I need to say in these interviews to ultimately play the role? And that was really the impetus behind, you know, kind of joining your program because I needed that I needed that direction. I needed to build a network and I needed to see what it would be like on a day-to-day basis to see if even that's something that I would want to do or even would be good at. The biggest thing too is, you know, VCs are trained to detect BS, right? So it's very difficult to like, I would say fool a VC because they talk to so many founders, right? That are, that are um, over-exaggerating and, 
And, um, you know, so there's only so much that you can fake, right? I mean, I tried, I was a tech person and I tried to pivot into VC. And a lot of times I would try to like spin it somehow, but they just would not buy it, right? So I think it's really difficult to, it's kind of hard to fake it, right? If you haven't done any of the work. And I, I think the biggest challenge is, you know, I think for you, especially, um, I think what probably was helpful was, you know, when you interview, they want you to talk about some deals, right? So if you're bringing up deals from like, you know, four years ago, obviously, you know, they're going to realize that those aren't relevant, or maybe those companies now are, you know, super late stage. So I think um, a huge thing that I believe is, you know, just having very fresh deals that maybe that fund might even like, but I, I, I want to know if that's the same thing that you feel, I guess, do you think that helps, um, you know, with the interview process? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's why your program is such a great resource for me, because a lot of the places I were, was interviewing was like, hey, you know, what are a few startups you think are interesting? Yeah. And I think most candidates who, who aren't already in the space, they're putting down hypothetical companies that aren't actually raising capital that you yeah. to do where, you know, I was actually speaking with companies for two months. I had a couple early stage companies that were actually raising capital. And yeah. so being able to use those and then say, hey, you know, these are real companies that are looking for capital. You yeah. know, that I think that was a differentiator that I had was that I had the experience for a couple of months of actually creating my own deal pipeline, creating my own network and having real companies to share. Because I think that that is the value that if you can come in day one with companies that that, that the firm can actually utilize as sure. opposed to hypotheticals that most time don't come to fruition. I think having that backlog was super helpful. Yeah. What were some other things that you recommend to prepare for when you're interviewing? So when you, you know, you got... You got maybe a first screen coming up, you know, because you're fresh off of the, you know, I mean, one year, almost a year, right? So you're, you're kind of a little fresher on recruiting, obviously, than me. So what are they looking for these days? So the first interview usually in general is what, like a screen, like asking about your background? Is that usually how the first call goes? Yeah, generally speaking, you know, it was a lot of background talk, like what you do, why do you want to do venture mm-hmm. in the ecosystem? Yeah. You know, you know, what do you think this job entails? And ultimately, this is something you tell me, but it's super important to have a story of why you want to do something. Yeah. When you're working at, you know, an equity crowdfunding platform like I do now or at a traditional venture fund, you know, they're hiring you to have an opinion and bring deals to the table that you have conviction for. So it's very important to, to have a, a solid base of companies that you want to target, have reasoning behind it and being able to prove to them like, hey, you know, I am intelligent enough and I could do the work to actually form solid opinions and actually give you the numbers and the information you're looking for. And I think yeah. that's one of the most important things is knowing what questions to ask. You know, there's a lot of information out there yeah. for stage companies and on the early stage, you know, it's a lot of qualitative stuff. You know, you'll see some revenue, right? You'll see some interesting things happening, but it's ultimately a bet on the founding team and the market and being able to piece out certain factors of that of what's important. I think those are important hurdles to get to get over up front to show the firm, like, I know what I'm talking about. And I know how to, to create an intelligent opinion on something. Sure. Yeah, I know. I think storytelling is a, um, a big piece. And I think, you know, if you tell them that VC is your passion, um, that the call will probably end right there. So um, mm-hmm. having, <laughs> having a real reason why you want to be in VC and, you know, being genuine, genuine about it, I think helps. Um, and, you know, Pauline has got a couple questions here and I don't want to read your paragraph, Pauline. So why don't you just uh, shout out your question and um, ask yeah, what you want to learn? Yeah, no, go ahead. 
so I, uh, I'm just curious. Um, I often heard that being a credit investor versus like an equity investor is very different, especially friends that are, you know, working in the public space. Um, I was just curious from a venture perspective, do you feel like working in venture debt versus like equity, like, do you feel like it's different? Yeah, I, I think, you know, a lot of the the research and, and underwriting and, and company, you know, specific stuff I did was was similar in some senses, but ultimately it's totally different. You know, when you're in venture, you're making a bet, right? There's no guarantee you're going to be repaid. Whereas you're on the debt side, you know, even though these companies are burning a lot of cash, typically a lot of these companies don't default. So there is a bucket of safety to it. Um, so you know, I, I would say the difference there is that, you know, venture capital on the equity side is just inherently more risky. Um, you know, they're harder deals to come by. They're a little yeah. bit more competitive, right? There's a ton of firms out there now that have capital to deploy for these companies. So it's not only convincing your team, like, Hey, you know, this is a company I believe in, but we, you know, we have to sell the founders sometimes too. If it's a great company, like here's the value add that we provide. We're on the debt side, you know, it's generally a commodity, right? Um, you could go to SVB, you can go to bridge bank, you could go to pipe. And so people are really looking for the best rates. So there's only so much personal connection value add that you can put behind it. So I thought, I think those are some of the differences that I've realized. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, what, what are some of the challenges with venture debt? I guess, I, I guess with, with venture debt, what stage is ideal to get into just, you know, generally speaking, is it usually like past series F are you looking, are, are they mainly, my question is, is it really ideal to get in like super late pre IPO or is it more on the growth side? Like, you know, BCD, I guess what's the entry point usually for venture debt? Yeah, I'd say it's probably a little earlier than pre IPO because at okay. that point, those are, you know, not always cash flow positive, but typically those companies can come by debt from traditional sources. So sure. I'd say probably when you're, you know, anywhere between kind of series B and D, when you're growing, you've just raised a lot of capital and you do need that safety support to extend your runway if you are going to go out and get a, you know, potentially get acquired or IPO in the near future. Yeah. Um, but it, yeah, I mean, it's definitely meant for companies, at least from the perspective that I was looking at, that had a lot of dry powder on their books that had really quality VCs. Because that's the only way that a bank is going to get comfortable. If you have, you know, a bunch of angel investors or some angel groups on your cap table, you know, they're, you know, the banks are just not confident that they're going to go support that company into the future. Those angels are hoping that traditional institutional quality VCs come in to support the company for those later rounds. So I'd say, you know, a couple million dollars in revenue at the earlier side, you know, traditional VCs on board, at least six to 12 months of dry powder. I think that's also something that's interesting is, the best time to go out and get venture debt is when you don't need it. Because when you do sure. need it, typically too late. And it's typically very hard to do so at that point. Yeah. So that's why it's typically done in conjunction with traditional venture financings. Sure. So it's kind of a backup supplement to have if you needed to, right. um, to just continuously grow. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, going back to interview prep, because um, I think some people could benefit from this. So uh, what are some other artifacts? So uh, along with the resume, what else should you package when you apply? I mean, and do funds always look at resumes or do they want to see like a, like an investment thesis or, or a blog or something or something that you wrote? Yeah, I, I, I'd say, you know, for seed invest, at least, you know, there was a, a lot of sourcing exercises and yeah. some other firms that I interviewed as well. 
you know, having, you know, past deal memos that you can look back on and plug in a company that you sourced into it and knowing yeah. how to do that and having that in your back pocket, I think that's super helpful. Ultimately, before anyone hires you, they're going to want to see that you can put something together that's, you know, quality enough to get by at their company. Yeah. So like Joe, when I did your program, having that backlog and resources of memos and a list of 200 companies was super helpful. Like companies yeah. that I was interviewing, I would say, Hey, you know, give me five, 10 companies that you're looking at. That would be a fit. And instead of me having to go research everything online, I could say, okay, cool. Here's a hundred companies actually raising capital, <laughs> but let me plug a few in. And then yeah. on the memo side, you know, just having, you know, memos to go off of and understand and in different industries, whether it's deep tech, consumer, SaaS, and knowing, you know, kind of what these, these companies are looking for, that was super helpful as well. Because yeah. that's where you want to show your skills. Like, hey, here's a cool company. And here's my, here, here's my story. Here's how I'm going through it. This is everything you need to know. Yeah. And, I, and I'm assuming, you know, because we have partner meetings, right? Where you guys present the deals and then you get kind of grilled, right? Where, you know, the, the, do, the job of the partner is to poke holes into the deal, right? And say, hey, wait, what about this? What about that? Um, you know, what, what is this company doing that's better, faster, cheaper than some of the other competitors? So do you feel that that, you know, it doesn't have to be related to seed invest, but maybe some of your other friends that broke into VC, is that quite similar? And I guess, how do they navigate that if there's different points of view, right? Like you, you think this company is really a hot company. It's a unicorn, but you know, other people don't. How, how does that impact like decision-making, you know, maybe from your, you know, your friends that are at VC funds or just kind of in general, um, you know, how can like the partners meetings be streamlined to, to, uh, to finally make a decision to say, Hey, let's invest or not. Yeah. I think poking holes is a huge part of it. That's seed invest. My friends who are at some other, yeah. firm, right. That, that is the job of the investment committee is yeah. to say, all right, here's what you're presenting me. Here are the issues. Do you know the answers? And if not, you have to go get them. Right. Sure. And I think ultimately it comes down to the fact that, you know, you are the one in contact, sorry, <clears throat> you're the one in contact with the founder. You're the yeah. one who's speaking with him for weeks and doing your own diligence. And in most cases, when you're presenting to, to your investment committee, that's the first time they're seeing the materials. Typically they're mm -hmm. looking at that for maybe an hour, two hours, kind of packaging what you've put together. And if the story isn't clear and there's a lot of holes, you're going to have to answer the bell there and, and help the team understand, you know, what, yeah. what the situation is. Um, so I think that's definitely prevalent. And I think, you know, in terms of streamlining, it's really tough these days because venture capital firms move extremely quick. Some now can, you know, give you a term sheet in a week or two. And so yeah. whereas historically you had a month or two months to get to know the team in person, right. And actually, you know, learn the company inside and out, maybe give a visit. Now it's like, all right, man, you know, I have a term sheet on the table. You have a week to give me a decision. Um, So that's where it's tough and you have to be really, you know, on the ball and in, in, in being in contact with the founder and getting the right information, right? Sifting through it, making sure you're going to the partners meeting with what you think they want to know. And if you do get, you know, holes poked in it, you can't feel bad about it. You just have to realize, hey, that is their job, right? They're putting sure. money in this business. It's a huge risk. These are stuff that I need to clean up. Yeah. And what do you think are the appropriate layers to streamline, right? Because you can't do a full memo for every deal. Right. So the, what, what we did, right, we kind of had a high level view, which is kind of like almost like a pitch, but not really a pitch because you're not pitching deals. But you're kind of like, hey, this is this is a company. This is why I think it's interesting. This is the market size. And this is why I think this company is the market leader. Right. And we should invest. 
Um, and this and this is exactly why. However, there are risks, right? These are the risks. So it's a neutral view, right? The, this is what I like, and these are the risks. But I still think it's an interesting company. Um, so you can't do long. I was talking to some people today this afternoon about that. You can't do these long, detailed, in-depth, you know, memos for all of those things, right? So what what has worked? Uh, you know, in your experience in organizations to kind of streamline the, the sourcing to, to partners meeting, to diligence, to closing, um, and just getting better throughput, I guess, you know, as far as efficiencies, what do you recommend? Yeah, I think it's a great point, right? You know, we don't have time to do these long memos and know everything about the company. And ultimately, yeah. if you look in every company, it's super easy to nitpick things that aren't important, but seem important at the time. So I guess, you know, I, I kind of break it up between early and growth stage, right? On the early stage, you know, we want to see at least some revenue growth, right? If the company is is kind of flat for a year, you know, that's obviously not a good sign. So that's a red flag right off the bat. And we also like to see previous investors in the company. We typically don't get in at the pre-seed stage, so we get in at the seed stage. So typically, yeah. companies are either coming out of accelerators or previous investors on board. So you know, are they getting into the round? Obviously, that's a great sign. They've seen the company grow over the year. They have better angle than I do. Um, what does the revenue look like? Who are the customers on board, right? Are they in pilots? And if so, you know, are, is there a clear path to revenue in the future? Maybe getting on a customer call, understanding, you know, what, what the value of the company has provided to the customer thus far. Um, but ultimately, I, I, it's, it's hard for me to say because there's no clear answer because every yeah. company, in, in what I do at Seed Invest, we're industry agnostic. So, you know, we're seeing robotics, SaaS, consumer companies, and you know, each deal is its own animal where you have to figure out what's important in the consumer and it's probably retention and growth and subscribers and kind of what they're doing uh, from a gross profit perspective. And then from a SaaS company, especially on the enterprise side, you know, do they have very high customer concentration, right? Do, do they, have, you know, are they only working with one or two companies or do they have a list of 20 companies in the pipeline that they're very confident they can achieve in the future? And at the end of the day, like I said earlier, it's a bet like, you know, so no one's going to have a clear answer up front, sure. but just each company, each sector, it's picking out important pieces and making sure um, that you can clearly define what those are to your partners. Yeah, that's a good point. I think also one thing with SaaS is, um, you know, when you're getting started, even in the seed, you can see a heavy investment up front to build the tech. And then I think you start and tell me if you see this too, but you start to see the the spending increase more on building a sales force because now you built the technology right so you got to spend time to build the platform thinking about like bloomberg right you build the bloomberg bloomberg is built now you just got to go out and sell it right so you just got to build the sales force and and hopefully there's some repeatability on that um you know what are some so that's those are two different dynamics let's talk how do you how do you evaluate deep tech <laughs> Yeah, so deep tech's tough. As you know, yeah. that's kind of what I did in your program. I yeah. don't I don't do so much of it anymore. Yeah. Uh, but at that point, you know, you are just looking at something that seems really cool and then yeah. you can talk to the team. They seem emotionally intelligent enough and you believe them to take it to where it needs to be. Um, you know, and you make a gut call. But in those situations, as you know, I brought a couple of those. They're, yep. they're tough to sell because at, at those points, there there's you know, it's really binary. People love yeah. it or people say this is never going to happen. It's way too far-fetched. And typically yeah. those companies, they're not planning for revenue and market growth till, you know, eight to 10 years down the road. So it's super hard to visualize. Yeah. So I, th I think with deep tech, you know, it really comes down to selling your conviction. I think that's a huge part of it too. Sure. At the first meeting, when you, when you get deals in, you have to be willing to put that deal on your back and say, this is why I believe in it. 
this is why you should. And ultimately, if you can convince the partners that you're on the right path, then you'll go for it. But if you're not good enough at selling the founder's vision, then ultimately, it's not going to go through. Yeah. I think the biggest thing, too, that I've noticed is super important is really at the end of the day is just how much money can they raise, right? So one of the companies that we invested in, you know, they raised like $10 million in a month, you know, and they were oversubscribed. So deep tech is the most capital intensive out of all the different sectors. And if you can't raise money, you're just going to die, you know? So I think for me, it's like, wow, how can they raise money very quickly or else they're just not going to be able to build because it's, it's usually pre-revenue, super capital intensive. And, um, there's milestones. And if you don't hit that milestone, you can't sell your product. Um, so, and, and then I think the other piece is the huge tech barrier, right? So it's, you know, it is becoming ubiquitous now to launch satellites. You know, it is becoming ubiquitous now to see uh, people, you know, build reusable platforms, but, you know, the, um, you know, understanding how you can uh, measure uh, the, you know, the ability to, to build this technology and make it, um, you know, defensible is a, is a huge thing. So um, I think Evan got kicked out, unfortunately. So he'll be back in a second, but, um, but why don't we talk a little bit about just um, the interview process? So, you know, what questions do you guys have about um, just interviewing and just kind of getting access to um, yeah, zoom just crashed. He's back in now but I'll, I'll, I'll loop him back into this. Um, hey, Evan, I think I see you back. Uh -huh. I was, don't worry, man. I, nobody even noticed you were gone, even though I, I called out that you were gone, but, um, but yeah, so, so deep tech, right. It's capital intensive. So you need to raise a lot of money. Um, and I, and I think you're right. I mean, it's difficult to sometimes source those deals because sometimes the really cool deep tech companies, you have to partner with universities, you know, because they're they're working on this technology and it's maybe sometimes not commercialized. But anything else that you have as far as words of wisdom when you were evaluating deep tech? Because we have a few people here that are on the uh, deep tech team. Yeah, I'd say for me, um, you know, some sort of validation and research is always helpful. Like when there yeah. have been, you know companies that have a long shot but they have no indication of the market or kind of where it could go in the future. That's always tough. And then I think for deep tech, for me, at least when I was in the program, you know, the founder is super important. Like what's his experience? Like, has he worked yeah. at a really high quality company and someone that you can trust that what he's doing makes a lot of sense. And then two, is he the one to get it there? Cause deep tech, like you said, you need to spend a lot of money. Yeah. You need to have a very clear direction. Yeah. Um, you, you need to be in constant development and understanding the market because things are clearly changing. So for me, it was all about like looking at the research behind things, looking at the market. And ultimately it came down to, in most cases, the founder, you know, is this guy superior? Like, do I trust him? And is what he telling me, you know, convincing? Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I totally agree with that. And I have an example. I mean, there was a, there's a guy that I know that's one of the founders of like Indie Bio, and he's done deep tech for, you know, more than a decade. And um, he, you know, he, pretty much tells me which deals are going to be the next unicorns as far as um, as far as the future of food and, you know, biotech. And, um, you know, there was a couple of deals that I brought to him and I'm like, Hey, he, he, well, he just told me, he's like, look, this kind of technology, if the, I see that none of the team members are PhDs and you need that level of like expertise to be able to deliver this technology and even create it. Um, because sometimes there's these teams that 
they there it's a CEO and they just kind of hire some experts, but the CEO is not really the expert. And I think that kind of sometimes impacts the vision of the technology, right? Because you need to be a visionary and think about, um, you know, really, really how you're going to evolve that technology to the next generation. And then think about, sure. think about like, could your technology be obsolete in the next two to three years? What is the next level? Um, and really to do that, you have to have that foresight and like that, almost that academic background to really um, know where the market could head. Cause you need to know that science, right. And the, maybe if it's a healthcare yeah. company, you need to know the, uh, the physiology and the, the applications that, that, um, that could be integrated in. So, yeah, it's a great point. And, and also like, you know, I'm not an expert in deep tech, whether it's biology or physics or quantum. So like I'm doing my own research, but you're right. It's very important to see that the team on board has been there for a while. And they're the team that knows kind of where the direction of the market's going. So having a friend, like whoever your friend is, he sounds great to give you that kind of conviction or give you that confidence that's super important in most cases. So de definitely agree with you there. Yeah. Um, we, I was actually, when you, when you stepped out for a second, I was actually talking about interview prep as well, just to kind of switch gears. Uh, Cause that might be interesting for some of the people here. Sure. So when it comes to interview prep, um, what are some questions to be prepared for? So you talked about like the, the, uh, the beginner questions like, Hey, why do you want to be a VC? You know, what, what got you interested in the role? There's a couple sourcing exercises. So when you're sourcing deals, um, what what should you put together? Is it is it a memo? Is that kind of the artifact that they're looking for? Yeah, I think most times they will ask you for a memo. Um, yeah. And in, in kind of some of my cases, it was like, hey, you know, do this sourcing exercise. Give us ten companies. Give us some high level information about the team, their competitors, and, and why you like the deal, and then take one of those and put it into a memo and, and be convincing. Sure. Um, so and yeah. Then you have to pre and then you have to present it probably too, right? And, some, and then you have to present it. And yeah. for many people, including, well, luckily I had the experience with you, Joel, but for many people, you that's your first time doing that, right? Yeah. If you're trying to break into the industry, yeah. you don't even know how to kind of phrase it and tell the story. And as you kind of go through deals on a consistent basis, you create a rapport and you understand the cadence behind, you know, selling a deal and understanding what to start with and what to end with. Mm -hmm. um, but they but grilled it, you just like a real partners meeting yeah. as well, right? Yeah. They grilled me, fully asked me questions. Some of them I didn't know the answers to. So I made up hypotheticals <laughs> and act, you know, you, you got to keep a straight face. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, but yeah, I, I think also what helped me too was just general knowledge of the industry, like starting yeah. to listen to podcasts, starting to talk to people that you know who are in the space because they're going to want to see that you have some understanding of what's going on with early stage companies. You know, what are current SaaS multiples? What are multiples for, you know, consumer companies? Yeah. And then also a lot of questions I got was like, Hey, you know, here's a early stage consumer company. They have two months of revenue um, with no investment to date. What factors would you look at to analyze the company for an investment? Right. And you have to do your research on companies and look at some memos. I know a lot of VC funds now, it's a trend to kind of put out their past memos. I know Bessemer does that. Yep. Read through those, see, see what those guys and girls are writing, right? Understand yeah. the points of conviction and, and the questions that arise from them. Um, and ultimately for me, consuming content and becoming familiar with deals that are going on and who's investing in what and, and why growth stage deals aren't doing great, why consumer deals are doing great, looking at the public markets, um, seeing what macroeconomic trends are affecting private company valuations, which is really something huge that's happened over the past couple of years. You see like Tesla 
their price per share is is crazy compared to traditional you know math for for, for yeah. people who invest in stocks and that's trickled down to the private markets ton of unicorns ton of you know companies with no revenue spacking at billion dollar valuation yeah. so understanding if you're an early stage firm how that's going to affect you is it going to make you have to pay premiums you know are you gonna to have to look for better deals um so just having all of that knowledge and consuming content was was for me super helpful Sure. What about financial modeling? Have they, you know, we did a lot of financial modeling in our program. We did like exit return analysis. Um, but when, you know, do you think that's important? If so, what are some, what are some quantitative models on the venture side to maybe brush up on? Should they do some return analysis or should they look at, you know, just a sample cap table? I guess, are there any Excel exercises that they should just Kind of have as table stakes or or is it more just sourcing yeah i'd say i'd say number one on the modeling side is understanding cap tables right yeah. understanding you know if you're new to it understanding what's the difference between common and preferred and how do i get the price per share if the company raises a convertible note or a safe how is that going to affect the post money of the next round those are just yeah. inherently important things to know as you look at deals because those are very big factors when you're deciding whether to put money into a company Personally, you know, a lot of what I do doesn't involve too much modeling. Yeah. You know, it's mostly kind of seeing the company's financial projections and kind of toying around, maybe creating your own model, doing a DCF. I know for growth equity firms and later stage VCs, um, you know, doing more of the DCF analysis and understanding, you know, what will happen to the company in different capital scenarios if they get debt, if they get equity. And some firms have certain return multiple hurdles that they need to hit. So in that case, knowing, you know, how to plug that into Excel and seeing what, yeah. you know, pre-money you're going to have to sell the business for in what time to understand mm -hmm. if it's a right fit, because sometimes, yeah. you know, the company's just not in the right industry and the multiples aren't there that, you know, it's just a red flag up front. Sure. Uh, but yeah, There's a question I, here. Did you do any case studies as well to practice, kind of do some sample Excel case studies or, or did you just, just dive in and, and, and see how, so, see how it went? Yeah, I, I did do a lot of case studies. A lot of the content yeah. provided, Joel, was super helpful. I, I mostly sure. focused on the cap table stuff to mm -hmm. make sure that I was razor sharp there. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, doing, um, you know, retention and churn analysis, right? So yeah. looking at LTV, looking at CAC, you know, looking at what the gross churn is versus the net churn, understanding those dynamics and how to model it out, I think is super important. Um, I think most companies these days, they are somewhat of recurring revenue companies, even if they're not a SaaS company there yeah. are predictable revenues that come. So understanding how that scales and then generally just three statement models, understanding how the income statement flows to the balance sheet, then flows to the cash flow analysis, understanding what driver, what, what are the drivers of the company, right? How yeah. do they do it to an industry standard gross profit, right? How do they eventually get to cash flow break even, you know, can they cut expenses or these, are these going to be stagnant? You know, what do they have to increase revenue by each month over month to ultimately get to a point where there are break even, um, so I think practicing those types of things were, will, will be very helpful. Yeah, that's helpful. So let's fast forward, you know, because we got, you know, a few minutes left. Um, tell me everything that's going on at Seed Invest. So, you know, you're on the growth equity team at Seed Invest. So kind of what are some of the, um, the things that you guys are, are working on? And, you know, just tell us a little more about, you know, your role, whatever you're allowed to share, um, you know, with, with kind of Seed Invest. And I think that there was an acquisition with Circle, I think, uh, maybe year or two ago. Um, so yeah, just give us an update on that. 
Yeah. So for anyone unfamiliar, you know, Seed Invest is a leading equity crowdfunding platform. So we're, we're a two-sided marketplace on one end. You know, we work with companies anywhere from seed through pre-IPO, looking to raise anywhere from half a million to $75 million in capital. And we fund those deals through an investor network that we've aggregated, you know, over the past 10 years. As it stands today, there's about 525,000 investors in the network. 100,000 of those are accredited. So these are venture capitalists, angels, high net worth individuals. The other 425,000, these are retail investors. So 98% of the US people that don't have a million dollars of net worth and are looking for ways to access private companies and build their own portfolio. Um, so we've grown a lot over the past couple of years. 2020 was a huge year for us on the growth capital front. So we did a ton of these 10 to $20 million full series A, B and C rounds through our platform, which is yeah. kind of where we've drawn our niche. If you look at a lot of other platforms, historically it's been companies raising, you know, half a million to a million bucks trying to get some seed capital in, but we've kind of proven the model of like, Hey, if you're an institutionally backed company looking to raise 20 million, you can come to our platform and raise that capital online. And there's certain benefits to that, but it's a really intriguing model and it's a really intriguing way to create this super efficient flywheel between customers and subscribers and your brand advocates to put them in as investors and have that army of supporters sure. going forward. And then there's all these deals, right? So that's where the VC associates have to come in because they have to source the deals. And then essentially that memo is like public facing, right? Because I mean, the non-accredited investor can look at that information and make an investment, but somebody needs to write that memo, right? And I've seen the memos, they're very, very detailed. So is that essentially kind of what some of your functions are, kind of like writing the memos or um, is it is it a little little bit of a hybrid with some other functions? Yeah, so uh, you know the venture team where, where I'm an associate on, we're really just the start of the process. So yeah. it's sourcing and diligencing. So on the sourcing side, it's a lot of cold outreach. It's a lot of networking. Yeah. It's a lot of referrals. And speaking with a ton of founders in, you know, yeah. we're industry agnostic, so really a wide mandate too. Um, sure. So speaking with founders, seeing who would be a fit for the platform, seeing who's really interested to do this versus who's really not. And then ultimately, when you find companies who do want to go down the path, we're doing the initial diligence for all the investors on our platform. Any deal that we approve and the securities are listed, they've gone through our, our, our diligence process. Yeah. Typically for companies, you know, that could be anywhere from two to three weeks. And you're right, Joel, we are creating the initial memo with our internal venture team and discussing all of the points we have today. So what does the cap table look like? Yeah. What does the growth look like? You know, is this a company that would do well? Mm -hmm. Something that's a little different from what we do is, you know, if we like a company, we're not saying, hey, here's $10 million. We're saying we love the company. Are we confident that we could go out and raise that $10 million? So it's sure. a little it's a little double-edged sword there where it's like we love yeah. the company, but we need to make sure that if we're going to commit and have the founders commit to this, that we can go actually and aggregate that amount of money from our investors. Sure. And then when a liquidity event happens, then just you just uh, work on the distributions fractionally to all the the investors, which are essentially these micro LPs, right? I mean, they can. What's the minimum you can get? You can invest in in some of these companies for like a couple hundred dollars, I think, right? Or a couple thousand. Yeah, I think I think the average minimum is about a thousand bucks. Yeah, uh, but we also created what's called auto invest. So for someone who had, because basically we preach diversity, it's not good to just invest in one or two companies. Sure, you really need to have a portfolio of five to ten companies to see returns. Um, so auto invest, someone could put in a thousand bucks, and we will go ahead and diversify that for them in two hundred dollars. Yeah, so sure. a really really great way for someone who doesn't have a lot of money on hand but wants exposure to do yeah. so. But yeah, we, we have so many internal teams at Seed Invest that handle the whole process. So 
when companies raise capital, let's say there's 5,000 people, those will all be scrunched into one line item on the cap table. Sure. And then you have a, a legal and operations team that handles corporate action processes. If there's an acquisition, transferring those shares to the parents or liquidating those, or if the company IPOs, actually going out and, and helping with the transfer agent to, to get those, uh, to, to allow those investors to sell those shares at the IPO. Sure. Do they, yeah, sometimes they give you a choice. So you can either get the shares or you can just get money sent to you after the, um, the lockup. So right. is that the case with you guys too, or do you guys just do a cash distribution or is it up to the investor to decide like, cause sometimes you don't know the right time to sell, right? I mean, some people just wait till the lockup and then they sell. Um, but you know, what, what if you're selling at the wrong time, right? Cause the price maybe goes up or something. So is, is there an option or is there like a default for distributions? Yeah, I don't think there is a default. I think it totally depends yeah. on, you know, how the company, you know, if it's an acquisition, those yeah. are super, super so easy. It just depends on the terms of the deal. And it just depends on the terms of the deal. Yeah. Okay. No, it's interesting. Um, and then, you know, we talked about this before. So Republic has a few people that have raised a fund, right? right. So I've thought about this, you know, as kind of an interesting play, you know, has, you know, has that ever been something that has been thought about with all these emerging managers, these people trying to do nano funds, you know, uh, mini funds, uh, sorry, it's nano and micro, micro uh, VCs, um, you know, would that ever be feasible for the business model to kind of have somebody spin up kind of like a fund, which is like a vehicle. And then from there, they can, they can also kind of deploy into startups. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, we used to do that um, oh, you back early on through through what's yeah. called Regulation D, which is a typical private placement. This is what sure. most companies use to raise capital. Yeah, and, and we we would help you know uh, you know GPs raise funds through our accredited network. Oh, I didn't know you guys already did that. So you guys did that a while back. So GPs would yeah, actually we, raise a fund. We did that a while back. We've yeah. kind of strayed away from it, and, and our mm-hmm. our core focus is you know working with co- growth stage companies raising yeah. more capital, but as you noted, there are competitors out there that have been doing that. Single GPs sure. raising millions of dollars online, which is super cool. It's yeah. just a little intricate in the way that they do it. I think right now, in most cases, you're actually getting a percentage stake in the earnings of that GP. So yeah. you're not actually like putting money into a fund, um, which is an interesting concept and seems yeah. to work. And it, it makes a lot of sense at the end of the day. So I don't think we have any immediate plans to do that. Sure. But I think yeah. as, as the industry matures and as there's new branches of the business that come about, I think once the SEC puts some clear regulation on actually doing that, as they do every couple of years, they revisit it. Yeah. I think that's something we'll likely get into down the line. I agree. Yeah. I mean, I think so. So what I've been learning too, you know, because I, you know, it's been a while since we caught up. So I launched a second program for emerging yeah. managers. And, you know, one of my mentors told me that you, you could, you know, another model is what you said, you know, owning the GP, right. but that's essentially the relationship of that experience is a kind of like a partnership experience versus being an LP. Cause if you're an LP, you're like a client, right? So you're, you're an LP in the fund, the fund, you know, is really supporting you as a client, you know, they have to, you know, they have a fiduciary duty, but when you own the GP, you're almost like a, it's like a stake in the business of the venture fund, right? It's the actual general partnership. Um, So that I think could be attractive to the investors. um, But sometimes for the GP, maybe it could be, it may not be if you're giving, depending on how much, you know, of the GP you're giving up, because I mean, that 20% carry, that comes back to the GP, right? So you're kind of sharing 
some of that ownership. But I think it could be useful if you're super early and you don't have a track record, right? And you want that maybe 500K to just get started, right? To go out there and maybe write a couple checks, right? Maybe write like, you could write, you know, five to six 50K checks, you know, starting out with a portion of the 500K. Um, so that could get you started at least versus, you know, having nothing. And, you know, maybe some people will be willing to give up the GP if that was the uh, the case. Um, but maybe that's that's what I'm thinking maybe makes sense for yeah, why, think, why the GP made sense. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting concept. And, and I, I would also say, you know, there is some dangers to that too, right? A lot of what we do at CNVS, we focus on investor protection. So making yeah. sure preferred equity, making sure the investors know that these are illiquid investments that they can plan to hold for seven years. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, if it gets to a point where there is a platform that's just letting anyone on with no experience raise capital from, you know, investors and promising these returns, it can get to a point where, where it gets a little bit shady and this yeah. person has no experience. But, you know, if it gets to a point where there are solid GPs like yourself or people who have been in the industry for a while and want to go off a little solo, that's a super interesting concept. It's just a new avenue to get capital and you're giving people more returns. So I think it's really interesting. And yeah. I look forward to see how it evolves. You know, what's cool about the, the equity crowdfunding model, it's still at the early stages. Most of yeah. the companies have only been doing this for about five or six years. So sure. really in the next five, five years, you're going to see who's returning capital, right? Or the investments in the GP is worth it. And then at that point, I think you're going to see a boom of whether this actually expands or, or contracts. Yeah. Do you think, because right now you guys are the people sourcing deals, right? But with, with syndicates, right? With AngelList, people are actually sourcing the deals and then they have people invest, right? So you can have a track record. Has there been any like user requests to possibly do their own deals and like, you know, post a deal on seed invest and say, Hey, this is a deal I found, or is it better? You know, it seems like there's a reason why you guys are kind of controlling most of the sourcing. Yeah. I mean, we do have a thriving referral program. So yeah. we have a ton of referred deals from founders that we work with, which is the most case in traditional firms too. Yeah. great portfolio companies. They give you mm-hmm. other founders they're friends with. Um, and then also, you know, we have 100,000 accredited investors in our network, a lot of whom are angel investors. So yeah. they are the ones kind of, of feeding us deals. And we do have incentives for them. You oh, know, that's if, you cool. us, if you give us a deal that's, you know, over 5 million, for example, and they successfully raise, we'll give you 20K. Or if it's an early stage seed company and they raise successfully, we'll give you 10K. So we, sure. we do have very good relations. And, and most of our best deals, they actually are referrals from portfolio companies or the, or the yeah. investors in the network. Sure. No, that's great. Um, well, hey, I know we're at time, so I'll just give a second if anybody wants to shout out any any remaining questions about you know how to break into VC, you know interview questions. Um, so shout it out. If not, we're gonna wrap it up. So you know, speak yeah. now or hold your. I need to answer anything. So <laughs> hi, Joel. Yeah. I might have one. Okay, Joel. Think I ask? Yeah, sure. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, good to meet you, Evan. Uh, very insightful information. Thank you for for being here, um, great information that you have shared so far. So the question that I have is how do we avoid the bias of decision-making during the uh, pandemic? I see a lot of companies are flourishing um, and some do have that scalability that we're looking for and some of them don't, but those that do, they're exponentially scaling during the pandemic. So how can I size up correctly the company 
and not have a biased um, way of thinking uh, because of the pandemic? That, that's a great question, John. It's great to meet you as well. You know, that's actually something we've been dealing with for, for a few months now is we will get great companies come in the door that prior to COVID, there really wasn't much traction. They weren't hitting on, on all cylinders. And then for some reason, their product or service during COVID, whether it was the lockdowns, whether it was remote work, whether it was people staying at home, they boomed, right? And their sales grew and they're growing their team. And it's really tough to understand what a post-COVID world looks like. And I, I don't think anyone has the answer to that. No one really knows. Are people going to return to the office? Is there going to be a hybrid approach? Are people going to uh, continue the same consumer spending trends for kind of at-home goods and services? And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's tough to answer. I'd say, you know, it's important to look at what they're doing and if they're evolving, right? If it's something that is super focused on what was popular in post-COVID and they plan to just continue that trajectory, then that might be a red flag. But if you have a company that's iterating and has a very diverse set of customers and potentially has long-term contracts set up if they're not a consumer company, then those are some good signs to point to. Because obviously you want to fund high growth companies, but there's also, you know, there's always macroeconomic trends to look at, but this is a very interesting year um, and no one really knows what's going to happen. So I'd say at that point, John, it's kind of company specific. And I think it's mostly important to look at what are the company's plans over the next one to two years? Are they using capital capital to expand their current products and services? Are they hiring more people for that? Or do they plan on branching off so they can be more uh, versatile when things do return to a more to more of normalcy? Yeah, it's a good question. Thank you very um, much, Evan. Yeah. yeah, good question. Thanks, John. Um, so I well, I'm going to wrap up here, and you know, I guess people can connect with you on LinkedIn. That's cool. Yeah, connect with me on LinkedIn. Feel free to shoot me an email too at evan@cinevest.com. Um, always happy to chat anything from venture or or just generally catching up. So always open. Yeah, thanks. And I always ask everybody this question. You probably remember from my past episodes, but now it's your turn, Evan. You know, share a piece of wisdom that a mentor gave you uh, so we can take that back with us. Yeah, I'd say something that really helped me, um, you know, was don't be the shy guy in the room. I used to be extremely yeah. shy, not willing to reach out to people, being scared to network, being scared to ask for something. Um, but I think, you know, ultimately people will respect you if you have the guts to reach out and ask yeah. them on the call or ask for some wisdom. And the ones who don't, they ultimately get left behind and don't get that knowledge. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that, that's something that's always stuck with me. Um, and I try to this day to always be the not shy person in the room, be willing to lend a hand, be willing to reach out. And ultimately, I made some great friends and colleagues and, and mentors from that. So, yeah, I know that's not the most, you know, groundbreaking. Uh, no, it is. But it's very much so helped for me because I used to be a very shy person who was very yeah. reaching out to people. Yeah, John may be mad at me because I, I mentioned this this afternoon. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's really, you know, the most important skill set, right? Venture is a relationship business, right? So if you don't, uh, number one, open your mouth and, and get out there and shake somebody's hand and try to build a relationship, um, you can miss out, you know, and I think um, not doing something about it, you know, you're either going to be in the situation you are now and you're, you're, you're okay with it or you're not happy and you do something about it. If you don't do anything about it, you're going to be stuck with where you are, you know? And I think um, what you're saying kind of resonates with that. So look, Evan, this was amazing. Thanks for your time. Really appreciate, um, you know, you spending the evening with us and um, it was really good to hear an update on all the great things that you guys are doing at Seed Invest. So excited to see um, 
see the future of uh, crowdfunding and uh, growth equity. So thanks for everything, Evan. Yeah, thanks for having me, Joel. Yeah. Thanks for the questions, everyone. And uh, hopefully I'll be back soon. Yeah, take care. We'll, we'll try to do a happy hour or something. Yeah. Um, I got something planned. So we'll try to do something in person. When are you coming back to New York? I'll probably be moving in uh, in mid-July. So okay. I'll be All right. All right. So I think the time is all right. So I'll keep everybody in the loop. Um, and uh, yeah, good evening and uh, catch up later.